Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Let's kick it off though first with my guest, Jay Hill, leader of the Federal Maverick Party. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show jay hill thanks a lot for coming on pleasure to be on your show mike okay it's great to have you here again let's just quickly remind the listeners jay of uh you had a pretty extraordinary political career here when you were an mp because as i recall you were a member of the reform party and the canadian alliance party and then the conservative party right yeah that's right yeah. Uh, mike uh, i was privileged to be the member of parliament from 1993 to 2010 for uh, the far northern riding of Prince George Peace River. Right. Now it's called Prince George Peace River Northern Rockies. Um, and uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was uh, present through that evolution or transition yeah. from reform to Canadian Alliance and then ultimately the merger with the federal PC party to form the current Conservative Party of Canada. Yeah, you had a, a front row seat to a lot of political history going on there. That's really interesting. So now you're the leader of the federal Maverick Party. Now, remind the listeners again, like, this is like a Western separatist party or not? You, you tell me. Well, it's it's sort of a, an either or. If you look uh, on our website at maverickparty.ca, Mike, you would find our twin track mission statement. And b basically, it's that we're seeking greater autonomy for Western Canada uh, either through constitutional change uh, right. or uh, in which obviously the West would remain part of uh, Confederation, part of Canada, or laying the foundation for an independent West. So it's an either-or situation depending on uh, the acceptability of some of our proposed changes to the rest of Canada. Okay, so it's independence if necessary, not necessarily independence. Is that about That's right? exactly right. It's a good yeah. way to put it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I stole that from somebody else. Somebody else said that sometime. Um, let <laughs> well, me play... play on the old conscription argument, I think, from the First World War. That's right. That's it. That's <laughs> it. Okay. Speaking of the Federal Conservative Party, your former home here, political home, let me play a clip here for you from Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. Now, here he is responding to this court judgment by the Supreme Court of Canada this week, upholding a national carbon tax in Canada. Here's Aaron O'Toole. Conservatives prefer a collaborative approach to tackling climate change to make progress while also helping maintain a strong economy. Let me be clear, Canada's Conservatives will repeal Mr. Trudeau's carbon tax. We will protect the environment and fight climate change, but we won't be doing that by making the poorest Canadians pay. Okay, Federal Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole there saying that they, if the Conservatives win the next election, they scrap the Trudeau carbon tax, but then they bring something else in its place. Now, now you've been very con uh, critical of his leadership of the party. Can you tell me your thoughts on this issue? Well, certainly I support the position he's taken. Uh, as, far, as So far as the uh, scrapping of the carbon tax, Maverick is completely opposed uh, to carbon taxes. We don't believe that it is having a, a fundamental uh, change in the way Canadians, uh, you know, emit uh, GHGs, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, the reality is, is that all it does is transfer money back and forth 
through Canadian society through taxes. And, uh, you know, it's disproportionate uh, to how it affects different Canadians, different British Columbians, and uh, that's why we oppose it. So we support Aaron O'Toole's uh, stand on that. What the great unknown is, however, Mike, is we don't know what he means when he says the Conservative parties are going to bring forward an alternate to the carbon tax Right. and a serious uh, climate change uh, platform for the next election. And what does he mean by that? He hasn't released any details yet uh, as to how he's going to uh, do that and still meet the Paris uh, targets, uh, greenhouse gas emission targets. And uh, that's a real concern, I think, for all of uh, all Canadians. Okay, are you, are you concerned that the federal Conservatives could end up endorsing just a, another carbon tax and under a different name, like some sort of carbon pricing system. Exactly. Yeah, because... Why, why, are, you concerned, why are you concerned is, about uh, that? Sorry? Why are you concerned about that? Well, because as I say, we're opposed to that. We have a different approach to how to assist uh, the planet in addressing emissions, uh, completely different from the other parties that seem to be uh, stuck in this uh, this hypocrisy where the increase uh, the world is increasing its demand for carbon uh, fuels, uh, and at the same time uh, we are restricting Canada's production of the cleanest oil and natural gas on the planet. And it, you know, we are going to continue to speak out against that type of hypocrisy. We believe that there's a better way to assist the heavy emitters around the world to address emissions and climate change. Okay, but you're not a climate change denier, right? No, no. I mean, <laughs> I yeah. said the other day, I said that uh, especially the people in, uh, in northern British Columbia, all they have to do is look out the window or step outside to know that climate change is real on any given day. It's been happening since the planet was formed. Right. And, so you, uh, so well, anybody hang, well, to hang deny on that climate change is a reality, I think, uh, is ridiculous. Well, it's, let me let me sorry, refine but, let me refine my question. Do sure. you do you deny human caused climate change? Like the climate change we're seeing now is caused by human activity, by greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere caused by humans. Correct. What I'm, what I'm suggesting, uh, Mike, and I think many other clear-thinking Canadians are suggesting, is the debate is not whether the climate is changing. It's always evolving. The debate is about how much is caused by human activity and what to do about it. That's the debate. Okay, well, let me play another clip here for you from Aaron O'Toole, because this is an issue that's uh, causing tr- trouble from, for him and the, the Conservative Party, I think. So here is O'Toole in his speech to the recent uh, virtual Conservative Convention. O'Toole. We all want a green future for our children. We cannot ignore the reality of climate change. The debate is over. But a Conservative government will not solve this problem on the backs of working Canadians. Okay, so he says the debate over climate change is over. I I suspect you would agree with him on that. But I guess the question is you want to know what he's going to do about it, right? Well, I think it's incumbent upon all Canadians to ask all political leaders what they're going to do about it. How are they going to approach uh, this issue? Uh, on a, in a global sense. And I think that it's ridiculous that we believe a country that produces about 1.5% of global emissions by punishing our own citizens in their lifestyle, especially in a harsh northern climate like Canada, uh, that somehow we're going to clean up the environment for the world. It's, it's totally ridiculous. 
and it's high time that we had a, a real good debate. I welcome uh, the debate at the bottom of the hour that you say you're going to have about this issue. I think it's important yeah. for Canadians to engage in this debate about how best to address this issue. My guest is Jay Hill, leader of the federal Maverick Party. Yes, it's a Western separatist party, possibly, possibly Western separatism if they don't get constitutional changes. That is the purpose of this party. So here we go with the carbon tax debate now. The B.C. carbon tax is set to go up next week, April 1st. That is this coming Thursday. That is the scheduled increase in the provincial carbon tax. It's right now the B.C. carbon tax on a liter of gas is 8.89 cents a liter, show a shade under 9 cents a liter. On Thursday, effective Thursday, that will go up about another penny, roughly a little more than that. So you're looking at about 10 cents a liter uh, filling up your vehicle on the BC carbon tax, which increases next week. Meanwhile, at the federal level, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's national carbon tax survives a constitutional court challenge. You had three provinces there, went to court, argued the national carbon tax, unconstitutional. Ontario, Quebec, Saskatchewan, or Ontario, Alberta, and Saskatchewan, they lost in court. The tax declared legal and constitutional, although it was not a unanimous decision. Have a listen to this here now. This is Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe reacting to that. Well, today's decision does effectively end our legal avenues as a province. It does not end our opposition to this costly and ineffective tax. And just because Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has the legal right to impose a carbon tax, I would say that it doesn't mean that he should. Okay, let's discuss now with our panel, Dr. Paul Kershaw on the line from UBC. He is the founder of Generation Squeeze, which uh, advocates for the younger generation and the economic challenges they face. Paul, thanks for coming on again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it a lot. Also on the line, Jasmine Moulton from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and I'm pleased to welcome her back as well. Hi, Jasmine. Thanks, Mike. Thank you to both of you. Paul Kershaw, let me go to you first. Uh, you were pleased with the Supreme Court decision upholding the national carbon tax, right? Yes, I was. It's uh, critical that we ensure our Constitution protects governments to have at their disposal all available tools to fend off the worst that climate change has in store. Because if we don't reduce our pollution, we are discriminating against younger Canadians and future generations. Right. So you think this is good for younger, younger people? Yeah, the, the logic is simple. When oh. um, <clears throat> people pollute more when pollution isn't priced. And the World Health Organization has identified climate po uh, carbon pollution as the greatest risk to human health in the 21st century. And that means we are putting in jeopardy younger people's opportunity to thrive in the decades ahead. And that is not something that is appropriate for people to do today. Just kick the can down the road to leave for other people to pay, not simply financially, but with their health. Okay, Jasmine Moulton, what did you think of the court decision? Well, I think that just because the court found that the carbon tax is constitutional, that doesn't mean that it's good policy. And look, I'm someone who cares very much about the environment. Mike, you know today is my last day on the job before I leave for Matley, so I care yes. very much about the environment that my daughter inherits. But it's because I care so much about the environment that my opposition to Trudeau's carbon tax is founded. As I've written before... Fighting climate change with Trudeau's carbon tax is like fighting COVID-19 with essential oils. It just simply does not work. Why wouldn't that it work, though? Can I go ahead, Paul? That's a lovely talking point, but that actually, to say that it's bad policy, what it really reveals is that the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is bad at reading the evidence. 
I mean, whether you're thinking about the convergence in the economics literature for which carbon pricing research has received, wait for it, a Nobel Prize in economics, or you're looking in the health literature where the most prestigious journals like The Lancet have dozens and dozens and dozens of the world scientists converging that this is an important health intervention. That's what the evidence shows. Now, the CTF is, uh, you know, open to having its own opinions, but it doesn't get to choose the facts. And in this case, it's just revealing that it is not reading the evidence accurately. Okay, Jasmine. So the fact that the carbon tax doesn't work, British Columbia has had the highest carbon tax in the country for the longest time, but emissions in British Columbia have gone up by 7% since its tax was introduced in 2008. But don't take my word for it. Look, if Canada were to uh, go above and beyond its targets of, uh, of reducing global uh, greenhouse gas emissions, Canada accounts for 1.6% of global GHG emissions. China's 28%. And guess what? They're building a lot of coal-fired power plants that even if Canada were to halt all economic activity today and reduce our emissions to zero, China would erase our progress in a matter of months. So it just simply does not make sense that we should export our economic prosperity, jobs, and frankly, our emissions to other countries under a punitive okay. carbon tax here in Canada. Okay. Paul, Paul, what do you say to that? Yeah. You know, the fact that Canada has a small population doesn't give us reason not to pull our weight in terms of reducing our carbon footprints here so that we can then also show some more leadership elsewhere. And the case remains that when it comes to the size of the carbon footprint per person in this country, it is larger than almost any other place on the planet, much larger than the carbon footprint per person of someone in China. So we okay. need to step up right now. Okay, what do, you, what do you say to the point that she raised about the BC carbon tax, which is the highest in the country, as Jasmine mentioned there, set to increase again next week, uh, and yet emissions have continued to rise in the province despite that? Yes, the data show two points on that front. First, that by comparison with how fast the emissions would have risen without the uh, carbon price, uh, we're doing better than we would have had we would have had it not been in place. I guess to some degree, it's then also invoking when we saw the rise happen, it was when we had a previous government cap the carbon prices and stop the tax shift. So rather than continuing to try to reduce earning, uh, reduce taxes that people pay on their earnings and collect more revenue by you know, trying to uh, you know, signal that we want less pollution, we stalled that for a while. And that is when we saw the rise in emissions like really reignite. So, so you think that the BC carbon tax should be increased even more? What I'd like right. to see is ongoing reductions in the taxes people pay on their earnings, especially when they're middle and lower income folks, and that we compensate for, for that by collecting more revenue by pricing pollution. That's okay. the efficient tax shift that would make the most sense to help people stretch their income, stimulate people to work hard, and simultaneously stimulate people to pollute less. That's okay. the win-win. Jasmine, what do you say to that? I find it very curious that Paul, an advocate apparently for the younger generation with Generation Squeeze, uh, doesn't seem to be concerned as much as the Environment Ministry federally is about energy poverty in Canada. And I quote, here's from one of the documents that they just released. Increases in transportation, fuel and home heating expenses would disproportionately impact lower and middle income households, as well as households currently experiencing energy poverty. And for your listeners, the definition of ener energy poverty is when households spend at least 10% of their household budgets on in-home energy use, such as lights, appliances, or heating. And for the record, in my province of Ontario, more than 1.1 million Ontarians are currently living in energy poverty. So I think that a carbon tax, frankly, is the opposite of progressive. Uh, by definition, taxes are regressive when they disproportionately impact lower-income earners, which the Environment Ministry federally has conceded. It's stated clearly in their documentation okay. about the carbon tax. Paul. But this is an easy thing to respond to. 
We can't solve our wallet problems by neglecting our climate problems. So if we're concerned about affordability issues, then let's make sure that our housing strategies are up to the task of, you know, relinking housing prices to what people earn in our local economies. If we want to make sure that people can afford to have their families, let's not let childcare cost another rent-sized payment. Let's bring down those major costs in people's lives, which will better position us to then deal yeah. with the challenges that come with climate change, including by being incentivized to pollute less by having a price on our pollution. Okay, and you also uh, the point that you raised earlier about, okay, you would like to see the carbon tax increase to reduce emissions, at, but at the same time you're saying you should offset that by lowering, lowering other yeah. input costs, like lowering other taxes that people pay? Yeah, so it's about a tax yeah. shift. I think what we want yeah. to think about doing is taxing more the things we don't want, like pollution, so that we can tax less the things we do want more of, okay. like better earnings for people in the middle and lower income parts of our, our socioeconomic spectrum. Jasmine, what do you say to that? Paul and other academics love to paint these utopian pictures that if Canada starts to tax its uh, emissions, that they'll magically just go down and somehow uh, the climate quote-unquote crisis will be averted. But the reality is that Canada is exporting its emissions to other countries like China that do not have carbon taxes. And in fact, only 14 out of 31 high-income countries of OECD countries have a carbon tax. So how can you expect, like I said, when last year alone, 350 coal-fired power plants were under construction around the world, uh, it's just, I think, a really silly idea to think that Canada should inflict economic harm on itself and export, by the way, okay. our emissions. It, it's not good environmental policy in the least. My guests are Paul Kershaw from UBC, Jasmine Moulton, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and we're talking about the carbon tax set to increase next week in British Columbia. It's time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Keith. Good morning, Smitty. Okay, we got a special edition of Baldry's Beat today. We got Premier John Horgan. You could only do 10 o'clock today, so okay, we can tag team him, right? <laughs> we Premier, are you there? I'm here, Mike. Good to hear your voice. Okay, Premier, thank you very much for taking the time to come on. I really appreciate this. Let me let me start, and then I'll let uh, Keith have a crack at you here. Um, yesterday, we saw 800 cases of COVID, and worryingly, a large number of these UK variants circulating in the province. At the same time, we got the province relaxing restrictions on visits in long-term care homes, indoor religious services. Are you comfortable here with relaxing some of these restrictions at the same time the case numbers are surging? Well, we, ha we had a two-pronged approach yesterday, Smitty. As you know, uh, Mike Farnworth announced that we're doubling down on the fines for those who are not paying attention to the existing uh, orders that are in place to protect British Columbians. And right. at the same time, we've seen such an uh, outstanding result from the vaccination program in long-term care facilities that the most challenging part of the of the, the uh epidemic, quite frankly, has been elders not being able to see their kids and their grandkids. So uh, Dr. Henry is confident that uh, we've completely uh, seen a shutdown in uh, outbreaks in long-term care facilities. I think we've gone from 40-some in January down to just two today. Uh, so I think that was news well-received by seniors, well-received by their kids and grandkids. Uh, on the uh, case count, very, yeah. very concerned. Uh, we, we were hopeful that we were seeing a decline uh, into March, but uh, the uptick is 800 yesterday, as you say, uh, uh, doubling uh, the challenge is the variant that is uh, more transmissible than the in initial virus. That's a concern for Dr. Henry, but uh, the vaccine program's moving. Uh, we have more supply than we had anticipated because of the AstraZeneca approvals. 
that means we can target communities like we did in Prince Rupert let and me, like we're doing in Surrey. So uh, me, I want uh, British Columbians to be concerned, Mike, but I, I also want them to have some hope that we're near the end of this. Let me ask you just real quickly on the point you raised about the fines going up and you more than doubled those fines. Like, what is the point of that? Is that like a deterrent? Because, you know, you've only only 10 percent of people are actually paying these fines. Yeah, well, that's uh, that we have other mechanisms like uh, withholding driver's licenses and other tools in our disposal. Uh, you know, Farney can talk to you about those, I'm sure. Okay. But the, the point is that uh, people, some, some people have said we need more restrictions. Uh, the people that are disregarding the restrictions that are in place are going to just continue to disregard them. So let's hit them where it might matter in their pocketbooks. Uh, the challenge is that so many people, and you hear it all the time uh, on the open, open lines, Mike, that, that people are doing what their part. And when I say we gotta, we got to dig a little bit deeper, they go, we can't. We're doing everything we can. It's those other people. And we want to make sure that we understand that. And we want to make sure that British Columbians get that we're going after those other people. Because okay. they're the ones yeah. that are causing the problem. They're the yeah. ones that are creating a community transmission. Keith, Premier uh, Baldry here. Uh, a year ago this month, I remember being in your office. I think it was the last time the two of us were physically in the same room. Um, mm-hmm. And we were talking about and you made it clear you weren't going to be the, the front person in this for the government. You're going to let Health Minister Adrian Dix, Dr. Bonnie Henry, uh, Solicitor General uh, Mike Farnworth, other cabinet ministers, Carol James, to be the sort of the, the head uh, team in as we guide the public through this pandemic you've been uh, congratulated for that some people have criticized you for that any thought of changing that approach or do you think it's working well i think uh, we made the right call at that time and i, I made that call uh, keith and and mike because i have such confidence in the people around me i'm a team sport guy i know that uh, the success of the government will depend on everyone doing their part uh, we have a gem as you know in dr henry not only does she have uh, Uh, superior qualifications uh, across the board. She also is a a very good communicator. She's tired. Adrian's tired. I'm tired. You're tired. British Columbians are tired of this. But I think it was the right call. I I did my job. I kept uh, all of the pieces moving. I worked with uh, confidence in the business community. I had uh, in my time in opposition, I had economic files. Uh, When I came into the premier's office, I had relationships with labor, with business, community activists, and I, my job was to make sure everyone uh, was getting a, getting a, a say and, and having yeah. input into our solutions to the challenges we faced. Uh, having Bonnie and Adrian, you guys know Adrian as well as I do, there's no one on top of detail uh, be, like him, no one. And uh, the two of them together have been a great team. I also think that uh, we don't talk enough about Stephen Brown, the deputy minister uh, at uh, the Ministry of Health, who has mm-hmm. been there for over a decade now. Just an outstanding public servant, and uh, the three of them together are quite extraordinary. Uh, my job is to make sure all the pieces work, and uh, I'm I'm proud of the team, uh, I'm, and I'm confident that British Columbians are getting the services that they deserve and expect. Do, do you think that your government needs to do more? Uh, I know you're doing a lot in terms of financial assistance, but even more. Today, arts and culture groups are celebrating that they got some money. Melanie Mark announcing it yesterday. But you've got the tourism sector, you've got uh, community fairs, Cloverdale Rodeo, the P&E, Williams Lake, you know, all these, these summertime yeah. festivities that need bridge financing right now to stay alive, a point that's been raised in the legislature. I know there's a $14 billion deficit, but is there, is there really a difference if it's the $14 billion or a $16 billion deficit? Doesn't money continue to need to go out the door? Well, we are pushing out unprecedented amounts of money between budgets, and we have our budget coming up uh, in less than a month. Uh, for the coming fiscal year. And I, I'm confident that uh, those groups that are struggling will see hope in, in that budget, a renewing of our commitment to making sure that people, businesses, and communities 
uh, are be able to sustain themselves through the pandemic. I also need to give props, and I get criticized for not criticizing the federal government enough, but uh, Christian Freeland, particularly, who started at intergovernmental relations in the pandemic and then moved to finance, uh, has been just outstanding in listening to British Columbians and listening to Canadians, quite frankly, through the Council of Federation. Unprecedented support there from Liberals, Conservatives, New Democrats at uh, provincial tables that are quite different, as you know. Uh, I don't recall a time in our history as a country that there's been this level of cooperation. And it's a, it's a credit to everybody that they're putting aside their individual or petty concerns and focusing on what can we do to make sure Canadians get what they need. So I'm I'm comfortable with where we're at. And I I think that uh, the next six months as the vaccine program rolls out, it'll give us even more confidence. We've got a few minutes left here with Premier John Horgan. Premier, we started today's show talking about the carbon tax. We had a we had a, a fierce carbon tax debate here a little earlier on the show. The BC carbon tax set to increase this coming Thursday by around another penny a liter on a liter of gas. Last year, you delayed the scheduled increase in the carbon tax because of the pandemic to give people a break. Why are you increasing the carbon tax next week? Well, because we need to get to the federally mandated target by 2022. Uh, The delay of a year gave us a grace period, uh, and we're going to increase the tax by about a penny on uh, April 1st. Uh, Of course, we've seen gas prices spike up again as we've seen more people driving and uh, you know, tankers going sideways in the Strait of uh, the Suez Canal. All of these uh, variables that the oil and gas industry throw out as explanations for why they gouge at this time of year. Uh, I get that people are unhappy about that, but the good news is that their car insurance will be going down by about 20% uh, with the new program we've got at ICBC. Uh, we've got a rebate coming from last year because the uh, crashes were down, claims were down. Uh, that means that people are going to get, the driving public are going to get a couple of bucks into their pocket before they see a penny a liter uh, on April 1st. Hey, one more for you from Keith here. Given the state of the government's finances, uh, and you're not alone, of course, every government's in this situation, aren't other tax increases inevitable, or can you rule those out? Well, I, we campaigned on no new taxes uh, other than the sugary drinks. I think uh, that one's uh, gone through. The carbon tax was already baked in uh, to 2022, another penny next year on the one that Mike just talked about. Uh, it's not our, our expectation that we'll have to raise taxes. We're expecting, uh, as we come out of the, the pandemic, uh, quite a boom in British Columbia. And when you look at the data across the country, our uh, employment is coming back very strongly uh, we're the lowest unemployment of the major provinces. We've got uh, the positive economic growth projections from the independent forecasters as well as those inside government. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll have a recovery-led uh, rebound for our finances. And that, that's really the good news. So we have other challenges. I know, Mike, you could talk to me all day about some of these. Uh, housing prices continue to spike up, uh, which is a big challenge uh, for young families. Uh, we had hoped that we had brought in sufficient measures to manage that. Clearly, we need to do more in that regard. There's a, a thousand things that the pandemic has sidetracked that people are still concerned about. And again, that's why I pushed out uh, Dr. Henry and Minister Dix and Farney on the pandemic front, and I was trying to focus on all these other issues. So we've got uh, many irons in the fire, lots of uh, uh, expectations from the public and our our job is to meet those expectations and we intend to in the months ahead premier thank you for taking the time to come on today Thanks a lot. love to have you back again soon thank you pre- pre- appreciate talking to both of you take care Be okay safe. okay premier john horgan there
A special edition of Baldry's Beat with Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. In the previous half hour, we talked to B.C. Premier John Horgan. Let's get the other side now. Shirley Bond is the interim leader of the B.C. Liberal Party. She's the leader of the official opposition in the B.C. Legislature. Very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi. Hi, Mike. Hi, thanks a lot for coming on. I'll ask you the first question I asked Horgan here a short time ago, and, and that is with the COVID case count surging again in British Columbia at 800 cases yesterday, a very troubling uh, high number of variant cases. Do you have any thoughts on uh, simultaneously relaxing some of the restrictions that we see? The, the province is allowing in-person religious services. We've got some relaxed uh, visiting rules in long-term care homes. Is this the time to be relaxing when the case numbers are going up, do you think? Well, I think, uh, Mike, as we've been raising in the legislature, and of course British Columbians have been focusing on as well, we need to make sure that at a time when uh, British Columbians have done, uh, the majority of them have done an excellent job uh, following all of the, the uh, guidelines, vaccination is the key to this. And oh. so we've been raising uh, important questions, I believe, about the vaccination rollout. We know that that certainly is what allowed uh, Dr. Henry uh, yesterday to uh, relax some of the visitation uh, rules in long-term care, and we're very appreciative of that, actually. But it's a time for cautious uh, optimism, but we need, to, we, we need to be vigilant. So from our perspective, the critical component here is ensuring that vaccinations get done, that they're done expeditiously uh, in the province, and I think that's critical to the, to, to the changes. Okay. Okay, Keith. Shirley, it's uh, Baldry here. You've been re you've been calling on the government for some time in the House uh, in question period and other times uh, to do more to assist uh, community organizations uh, such as the P&E, the Williams Lake uh, Stampede, the Cloverdale Rodeo. Uh, a lot of uh, basically organizations and festivities are at the heart of local communities. I put that question to John Horgan earlier. He didn't rule out doing that and perhaps signal that maybe there's something coming in the budget. Are you hopeful that you've sort of made some impact there or are you still kind Kind of discourage what you're hearing no in fact we have made an impact you know we've looked at uh, it, for example uh, things like uh, making sure the bchl got moving we we made sure that the extension uh, took place for small and medium-sized business grants which by the way the premier said couldn't happen so of course we remain optimistic and the premier and i and and our team have talked about this matter we know that those organizations are the heart of communities. And frankly, uh, government needs to pay attention and, and respond. So we'll be looking at that and certainly uh, line by line, making sure that the budget reflects the needs of communities and, and individuals across the province. Okay, speaking to BC Liberal leader Shirley, Shirley Bond, one of the other things we talked to Horgan about here a short time ago was the BC carbon tax set to increase again next week. So Thursday, April 1st, the carbon tax increase is going to add about a little over a penny a liter on a fill-up when you gas up your vehicle. Do you have any thoughts on the carbon tax in BC and whether you think it should have continued to be frozen? Like last year, they froze the carbon tax in place because of the pandemic to give people a break. Pandemic's still going on, but the carbon tax is going up next week. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, the, the challenge we have is that the carbon tax isn't the only thing that's going up. Next uh, week, British Columbians will face significant increases to things like sugary beverages. They're going to look at uh, increases on things like Netflix. Uh, this is a government that relies heavily on increasing taxes. And, and, you know, we're very concerned about that. 
British Columbians and, and businesses across the province are at their capacity to manage these financial issues. So, of course, we're concerned. And I do want to, I know you will remember that we created the carbon tax, but it was right. revenue neutral. And mm-hmm. that's an important element lost on this government. Okay, so you're not opposed to the increase next week then? On the carbon tax. Well, of course, we're concerned about that. And British Columbia continues uh, to be uh, ahead of other jurisdictions. And, and this premier should be having regular conversations with the federal government about that increase. We're, we're concerned about any taxes that are going up at a time when British Columbians, businesses and families can least afford it. Shirley, as you mentioned, a number of things are going up on April 1st because it's the beginning of a new fiscal year. Do you think the government should should stand down anything that as at their disposal in terms of uh, fee hikes, uh, tax hikes and such, uh, considering the situation we're in in a pandemic? Well, they should absolutely consider that. And the last thing we want to see is new taxes. British Columbians have said clearly, we've had enough and we're concerned about that. We raised an issue, Keith, as you know, in the, in the legislature, for example, about fees uh, to daycare, mm-hmm. daycares that are driving them out of business, uh, crown land leases that are, are uh, fees that are going up. So yes, the government should be taking a look at what's in the best interests of British Columbians and certainly tax hikes at a time like this and fee increases are really challenging. Like you mentioned, uh, a looming tax on Netflix. So I, I believe it's the, the PST, right? The, P, the provincial sales tax will be charged to Netflix starting next week in BC. Is that correct? Well, they're adding new, yes, they're adding tax yeah. uh, increases to Spotify, uh, those kinds of things. Right. Do you think that should be delayed or, or, or they should not go forward with that? Well, I think there should be consideration for what's most important for British Columbians and tax hikes and tax increases. Uh, you know, there should be consideration of them. First of all, we disagreed with those taxes in the first place. This is a okay. government that taxes and spends. We don't support that approach. Okay. Do you, uh, speaking of uh, BC's finances, we, we'll have a budget here soon in the province. Do you have any concerns about like where we're at with the sustainability of spending in this province and the large deficits? Like every government is racking up huge deficits. Do you think it's, it, we're spending too much in BC or are you comfortable with the spending? Well, we certainly agreed to providing badly needed supports. The problem has been this government's been unable to actually get those supports out the door appropriately. And what we want to see is a plan. The theme of this legislative session was no plan. There's no plan to deal with tourism, the tourism sector, no plan to support economic growth and recovery. There's a missing plan. Mental health and addictions. You, you have seen the, the uh, hit and miss approach uh, in terms of those programs. What's missing? is planning. We understand the focus on COVID, but let's be clear, we need to look beyond that as well and have a plan in place for those issues. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Shirley. Always. Thanks for the opportunity. Bye-bye. Okay, Shirley Bond there. She's the interim leader of the BC Liberal Party, leader of the opposition in the House, responding to the earlier interview we had with Premier John Horgan. And we covered a lot of ground there. We talked about some tax increases going up next week. You heard about that increase on Netflix and streaming services. That's kicking in next week. The PST would apply to those fees. Uh, The BC carbon tax going up next week. You heard her criticize these tax hikes in BC. Phone me on that if you like. We also talked about the surging caseload of COVID in the province, some restrictions being relaxed. A lot of people worried about that. Phone me on it. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. 604-280-9898, star 9898, toll free on your cell. Keith Baldry is here. It's Baldry's Beat. This is Mike Smith. 
Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Back of your calls. Let's talk about the COVID-19 pandemic now in one of the hardest hit sectors in this province, and that's long-term care homes. So very difficult, not only on the residents and the staff of long-term care facilities, but also the families, the sons, the daughters, the spouses, separated from their loved ones. For the last year, unable to see their loved ones, unable to give them a reassuring hug. This is one of, one of the most terrible costs of this pandemic that we've seen. Yesterday, some hope for families as Dr. Bonnie Henry outlined some new guidelines for visiting rules in long-term care facilities, allowing up to two visitors at a time. You'd be able to hug your loved ones in a long-term care facility. Let's have a listen to Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday. We will be limiting the number of people at any one time, so the um, to two visitors um, plus a child to allow for visits to grandparents and great grandparents as well. The location of visits are now changed so that your family and um, loved ones and friends can visit in a a residence room primarily, and we'll have provisions for residents who are in multi-bed rooms. Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking yesterday. Let's discuss these new guidelines now with my guest, Brenda Brophy. She is an advocate for families of long-term care residents, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Brenda, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. And I have to say, the way you started your segment, I really appreciate that you acknowledged what the families have been through. Um, It was one of the things that struck me yesterday, uh, and not to start with something negative, but there was no acknowledgement of families. It was about residents and staff, which, of course, it's been incredibly difficult, but um, it can't be understated how incredibly difficult this has been for the sons, the daughters, the husbands and wives, all the people that have endured this for over 12 months now. Oh, yeah, there's absolutely no doubt about that. I think some of the most heartbreaking conversations I've had here with people on this show over the last year have been people who have been separated from their loved ones, and it's really tragic. Could you remind the listeners, Brenda, about your own situation with your mom? Because I know your mom was in long-term care, but you were able to bring her home and care for her there. How is she doing? She's doing well. Thank you for asking. She will turn 101 in uh, just another week and a half. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's doing well. She's, she's gained about 10 pounds, pounds now. Her, um, you know, she's not going to regain all of the cognitive function that declines so dramatically in, in the months of isolation and not having me there as an essential care provider. But, you know, it's 
we've seen some gains and, and probably more so than what anybody would have expected. So thank you for asking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, our own situation, I was not able to get designated as an essential visitor and the social visits were so incredibly restricted that my mom just declined steadily. And at her age and the type of decline I was seeing, I was just fortunate enough to be in a situation where I could make this possible to bring her home. But it is, you know, for 99.9% of people, that's just not realistic. And while I'm blessed, I wish that there could have been some changes sooner so that she could have remained, you know, where she was in her room, in her residence, um, and, and not have had to go through this. But, you know, it is what it is at this point. Yeah, and I think it's awesome the way that you have stepped up as an advocate for other families who are still separated from their loved ones and, and unable to bring their, their family members home for, for many different reasons. So let's talk a little bit, Brenda, about some of the new um, guidelines that were announced yesterday. Uh, so two persons visiting at a time, like what jumps out at you here in, in these new guidelines that were announced? But some of it was not new. So while, you know, if you don't have a horse in the race, so to speak, you don't really know the ins and outs of all the changes and the guidelines that have been in place since last March. The ability to visit in the residence room has always been there. It was just a choice of the health authorities and the individual facilities to not allow that to happen. That's nothing new. You always were allowed to hug. Some health authorities may have put in place different guidelines, but certainly in the facility where my mom was, we could hug as long as we were masked. The rule was you cannot interact with anyone else. So fair call, right? So um, unfortunately, I'd have people that recognize me coming up to me and I'd be like, no, no, stay back. I can't get within, you know, two meters of you. Um, So that isn't anything new. Um, They're kind of representing as as that. What is new? What is new and what they announced yesterday? So not having to have a designated social visitor. It can be anybody. It's just two at a time plus a child. And it can, and, you know, they're saying, that the frequency should, or the duration should be a minimum of 60 minutes. It's not all, that's new, but there never was a limitation on duration or frequency. And that was one of the real shortcomings and how it was rolled out with facilities and health authorities. They could have made quality visits happen more and be longer and be in the residence room. Isabel McKenzie put forward those comments and recommendations last November. They just haven't been acted on, but it, there was never a rule against that. Um, so what jumps out at me, which is really positive, and I don't want to, to represent that all of this is negative, um, I guess yeah. for myself as an advocate, it comes with a bit of skepticism necessarily. Um, but I went out to my group that I, I started a private Facebook group last summer, and we have over 300 members around the province representing their loved one and their family. So I asked them last night, I was like, how do you feel about it? Because I don't want to just feel you know, the, the skepticism, because I have a little bit of that going on. And um, what jumps out is that there's a concern about consistency and enforcement because Bonnie Henry has made this a guideline where she has expectations. This is not an order. So it still leaves the control and the power with the health authorities, but mainly with the facilities. So I think it's great. There's some wonderful changes to the social aspect. And I think what jumps out the most for those that can take advantage of it is being able to go on an outing. You know, can you imagine what it would have been like for 12 months plus right now if you weren't allowed to leave your home or your bedroom? So that's what it's been like for these poor people. They couldn't go out for an ice cream or a drive along the ocean or, you know, anywhere or maybe, you know, to their their son or their daughter's home for, for a meal. Now they're saying that those outings can happen and you don't have to be isolated for 14 days when you come back. So that's a wonderful change. There's a lot of residents, though, that don't have the mobility um, and aren't able to go out. So some of it is good. 
Um, But again, I think that the biggest problem that we have if we look at just the social aspect is that um, Bonnie Henry has stood up yesterday. And while, you know, it's good that the change was made, she said, here's my expectation. And that's been the problem all along is that she had an expectation and then that wasn't happening and there was no recourse for families and there's been this stubborn refusal to really listen to families. They can say they're listening, right. they haven't been listening. We have some changes now, and I like to think that the families that have advocated, and myself included, may have had a, um, a role in that because we haven't shut up. We've been continuously going to the media and speaking out. But when she says she has an expectation, we're back to the same old thing. There's There could be a lack of consistency, and there is no enforcement that I can read in anything that was released yesterday. So... Hmm. Cautious okay. optimism. Um, you know, they need to know if people like myself and others and these families aren't going away. And I'm pretty sure that the tireless reporters that have been in touch and coming to us will still be on this. And we're, I said to them last night, like, hey, I can't wait. April, send your pictures of that first ice cream, the mm. first drive, the first, you know, hug with a grandchild. But also, you know, keep talking about what happens, what roadblocks you hit. Um, and sadly, nothing changed about essential visitors, and that's the life and death part of this whole tragic situation right now. The social visitations are going to be great, especially for mental health, but the essential visitor, that's still a problem. My guest, Brenda Brophy, she is an advocate for families and visiting rights in long-term care facilities in our province. We saw new guidelines introduced yesterday by Dr. Bonnie Henry expanding visits in long-term care. Let's talk about a page in Vancouver's sporting history, 1988. Wayne Gretzky famously traded by the Edmonton Oilers, of course, to the LA Kings. What about the Canucks, though? The Vancouver Canucks were in the running for the Gretzky sweepstakes, the deal that was on the table here for the Canucks to possibly land Gretzky is outlined in the recent book by former Canucks general manager Brian Burke. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Rob Williams, sports editor at the Daily Hive. Pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Rob. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Let's go in the way back machine here now. Wayne Gretzky, the day that they traded him, to the L.A. Kings from uh, the Oilers, August 9th, 1988. Famous news conference. Here's what it sounded like. Promise mess I wouldn't do this. <laughs> but, um, as I said, there comes a time when... when uh... oh. oh, man, poor Wayne. He's tearing up there as he's traded by the Oilers. Okay, Rob, let, let's talk about this now. Like, how close did the Canucks come to getting Gretzky instead of the Kings? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like pretty close. I think uh, if uh, if the if the Griffiths family maybe had deeper pockets at the time, that uh, that maybe it was possible. Brian Burke, um, you know, as he mentioned. Uh, recently was outlining like what it would take to get him. Uh, the two players that Burke mentioned were Kirk McClain and Greg Adams, you know, two players that had uh, very long, very good careers and with the Canucks and uh, nearly helped Vancouver win a Stanley Cup themselves. Um, but the, the biggest uh, drawback to the offer was that um, 
was the money involved in, and essentially yeah. uh, the Oilers wanted uh, $25 million, which in today's dollars <laughs> is laughable. I mean, that's, that's a few fourth liners and a, and a, <laughs> and a couple of players uh, in the minors on the Vancouver Canucks uh, right now. So yeah. uh, apparently that was the, the big holdup and, and Burke said that he, you know, he tried to figure out how he could, um, you know, possibly make the money work. Uh, you know, the most expensive uh, ticket at the at the Coliseum was about $30, and he was trying to figure out, well, would people pay $35? So the numbers are all laughable <laughs> in, today, in today's terms. Yeah, no kidding, 35 bucks, yeah. Uh, and $25 million, yeah, that's kind of chump change in today's NHL money, but that was the deal. So the Oilers wanted Kirk McLean, Greg Adams, $25 million bucks, and three first-round draft picks, right? Like, how, how did that play into the deal, three first-round draft picks? Because I, I went back over the Canucks draft list over the years, Rob, and, like, in the 1988 draft, uh, the Canucks in the first round took Trevor Linden. So, you know, come on. You know, they got Linden. <laughs> then the next year they got they got a Jason Herter. And then they exactly. got then they got Peter they got Peter Nedved in the following year. I don't know. Do you think this like looking back on it now? Do you think this is a good deal? Do you think the Canucks should have maybe tried to go for it and get Gretzky? Yeah, I mean, I think that when I mean when Gretzky was traded, that would have been after the 1988 uh, draft, so that wouldn't have included. Linden. Okay, so so, so they would have got so they would have got Linden, right? They still would have got Linden. In, yeah, in the, I mean, assuming Linden wasn't part of the deal, then then I think um, you know that makes it a little bit harder to swallow. But geez, I mean, the the chance to get the chance to get um, the greatest hockey player of all time uh, in his prime, I think, would have trumped just about any deal you could have uh, dreamt up uh, to the Oilers. So I, I, I mean, I think there's you know. Lose, and, and like you say, I mean, like the Canucks drafting was 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 not great. So um, I think there are, there would have been ways to to figure everything else out. Like you can find yeah. another Kirk McLean, you can find another Greg Adams, you can't find another Wayne Gretzky. And so it, it it probably would have been the way to go. Um, the Canucks did have some success, uh, you know, you know, a lot of success with with Trevor Lynn and Kirk McLean and Greg Adams. But oh, sure. but yeah, it's fun to think about what could have been. Yeah, no, it, it really is. Now, you meant you described Gretzky as the. Do you believe he's? Do you rank him number one all time? Do you believe he's the the goat? He's the greatest of all time. I mean, that's like I think the wide the widely uh, the consensus pick for for the vast majority of people. But you know, there is some dissension on it. But do you do you rank him number one? Yeah, I, I would. Yeah. I think the only player that you could maybe um, that really can make the best argument against him is, is perhaps Bobby Orr because he played a different position, played in a different era. I mean, I'm not old enough to remember Bobby Orr as a player, but um, I mean, in terms of records and numbers, I mean, there's, there's it's undoubtedly Gretzky. Okay. I would agree with you. I would rank Gretzky the greatest player of all time. And now I'm older than you, Rob. So I, I do remember I saw Gretzky play and I'll, I'll tell you this date. Let's see if I can put you on the spot here. Wayne Gretzky had so many great records, so many amazing moments in his career. Do you know what happened with Wayne Gretzky on February 24th, 1982? Uh, scoring a big goal against the Canucks, for sure. <laughs> <Was that? laughs> okay, I'll tell you, you what. He get I'll, all of his milestone goals against the Canucks. I'll tell you what it was. 
February 24th, 1982, was the day that Gretzky broke Phil Esposito's single-season scoring record. And that happened in Buffalo, New York, in a game, the Munch- the Edmonton Oilers versus the Buffalo Sabres on that date. And I was at that game. <laughs> I was at that game. I went to that game with a buddy of mine because we said, this is an opportunity to see Gretzky set this record. And it was an unbelievable atmosphere in the Buffalo Memorial uh, Memorial Arena. And it was incredible because it got to the third period. Esposito was in the crowd because Esposito had been following Gretzky around, waiting for him to break the record. So he was there. They went into the third period, and Gretzky had still not scored. He finally scored. He broke the record. Espo came out on the ice and gave a little speech to Gretzky. And then late in the period, Gretzky scored two more. So he scored like a hat trick in the third period to just shatter the record. And I'll never, ever forget that because I was in the arena that night. And let me play this here for you, Rob. Here it is going back to Gretzky on that night. Thrilled to be chasing down a guy like Phil Esposito. And he was kind enough and showed a lot of class and dignity when he came to follow me around when I had a chance to break his record. And it was a time I won't forget. And I want to thank you for allowing me to be part of this. So I mean, thank God, Wayne. Congratulations. Number 99 wasn't content with 77. He would go on to score an astounding 92 goals that season, an NHL record which may never be broken. Okay, that's probably maybe one of the most vivid memories I've got in my in my mind as a sports fan that I happened to be in the in the arena that night to watch Gretzky break that record. But like, where do you, what do you think? I just I just felt like telling that story, Rob. <laughs> Um, where do you rank, like, what do you think Gretzky would have done for the Canucks, though, if, if he had come, like, kind of later in his career? He never, he never won another cup with, uh, after he left Edmonton, right? Like, do you, do you think he could have made a difference with the Canucks? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, Gretzky was the ultimate guy that made everyone around him better, right? Um, and, you know, it's true he never won a Stanley Cup with the LA Kings, but think about, you know, how he elevated that franchise when he went there. And, you know, it's easy to forget now, but the, the Kings were a sad sack franchise, you know, as, as were the Canucks at that same time. They were pretty comparable teams, I would say. Kings maybe had a few guys that were, you know, had higher talent levels. Um, but, of course, you know, Pavel Bure was in the, was in the, in the pipeline at that time. And the Canucks, um, you know, did have Pat Quinn and made a lot of good moves. So, I mean, it would have changed everything with, with those teams. But to have that building block of Gretzky, I think just just changes it just changes the outlook on on everything. And you know, look at his, I'm looking at his his numbers. I mean, his, he scored yeah. over 120 points <laughs> per season in in five of his first six seasons in LA. So those are incredible numbers. And, and the and the one season he didn't, it was because he was injured. So he was still an incredible incredible talent uh, for you know many years with LA right. and it would have it would have it would have changed everything maybe it results in a Stanley Cup for for Vancouver but um you know the the domino effect you know or the the butterfly effect from that would have would have been uh you know significant Wayne Gretzky the story of how he almost became a Vancouver Canuck back in 1988 the year he was traded to the LA Kings the deal that was on the table, rejected by Brian Burke at the time. Edmonton wanted $25 bucks. Kirk McLean, Greg Adams, 
and three first-round draft picks from the Canucks in return for Wayne Gretzky. The deal was turned down. If we go back in the Wayback Machine, should the Canucks have done this deal? What do you think? Should the Canucks have grabbed Gretzky back in 1988? Rob Williams is my guest, sports editor at the Daily Hive.